Hey everybody, welcome back to the Batman the Animated Series Podcast, the Bat-Ass Podcast. My name's Clay McCormick, and with me as always is... Hey, Sean Murphy here, happy to assist. <laughs> well, you know, you do all the work. I told you we, we should do this podcast, so but much work. I just want to show up. I don't want to have to do any work or build a website or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair, because all that stuff sucks. Um, yeah. <laughs> and hopefully, uh, hopefully it won't be too much work on my end. Um, right, right. And, and you'll be able to tell if you're listening to it if it sounds like shit. I put no work into it. So. <laughs> well, that's kind of like why it's better to be Robin and not Batman. Batman had to, like, he had to start a whole, like, you know, build the Batcave, build the car, find the IP, build the costume, and he just <laughs> he had to find the IP. <laughs> <laughs> he had to reserve the website. He had to go through the book. He had to find what bats, what superhero costumes weren't taken yet, what trademarks hadn't already been reserved. Yep. <laughs> who to sue? Who to sue if he wanted one really bad that had already been taken? It's just like starting any business, any upstart, you know. And then yeah, Ro- Robin just joins up. Like no wonder Batman's always pissed. Robin gets like a free ride, basically, you know. That's a good point. Robin really doesn't do anything, does he? I mean, like, day-to-day at Wayne Manor, he does not really contribute from what I've ever seen. No, and I I bet he leaves lights on, doesn't flush the toilet, like all the annoying things that roommates do, you know? (laughs) Andy's a stupid kid. Uh, Unfortunately, Robin will not be in the episode we're talking about today. (laughs) A good segue. (laughs) Uh, But today we'll be talking about two. We'll be talking about the Clock King and Appointment in Crime Alley. So let's get into the first one, which is The Clock King, directed by Kevin Altieri, written by David Wise, and in it, after his company goes bankrupt, Temple Fugit becomes the Clock King. Fugit sets out to seek his revenge against the man whom he blames for his misfortunes, Mayor Hamilton Hill. Fugit kidnaps Hill, intending to do away with him to accomplish his revenge. Batman must stop Fugit from carrying out his revenge and save the mayor's life. Hmm. Um... I do you... don't think I ever liked the Clock King when I was younger. I think I always thought he was a pretty lame villain. Right. Uh, I think mainly because he was not a... I think I, as I've said previously on this show, I was never really into the um, made-for-the-show type characters. And I think because I didn't know the Clock King, I assumed mm-hmm. he was a made-for-the-show right. character. Because it's ridiculous. Like, why would they put this in a comic? Right? Yeah. <laughs> he is pretty silly. But I will say, um, I kind of I kind of have a newfound appreciation for the Clock King. Yeah, and I like him. And I liked it as a kid, too. But I was more drawn to these uh, contemporary stories. I wasn't so much into, like, big, splashy superhero stuff, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we kind of pointed out a little bit um, is that Batman's villains, by and large, seem to just be uh, weaponized uh, people with mental problems. Right. And, um, <laughs> and Clock King is, honestly, he's one of the more believable villains. Yeah. He's, he's like a... He is... Um, yeah, he's basically OCD and kind of, you know, Asbergery, And mm-hmm. he just gets set off in the in in the wrong like the one time that he goes off of his track uh his ocd time uh track every his life goes to shit and it causes basically breaks his brain and causes him to turn into a villain that's i mean obviously it's Mm -hmm. not 
that's not how things happen in real life. But it's like in the, in the grand scheme of Batman villains, that's probably mm-hmm. one of the more believable, yeah, uh, dramatic, uh, dramatically believable origins. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, you feel like he's the type of guy that needs to write it down before he speaks to you. Like he needs to make notes on everything, and you know, if he's late for work at all, he just loses his mind. Um, yeah, I, I totally see this. Uh, I mean, as a kid, I enjoyed it, but I even I like it more even now, especially. You know, if you imagine that he's got this footage of Batman and he can time Batman's punches and sort of know Batman's patterns and when to duck, it's kind of plausible in a sense, you know, that he could maybe give Batman a run for his money if he's a step ahead of him. Yeah, I think I think you have to I have to I think you have to ratchet that up quite a bit in order to get there. Like he's going to have to have like a like a superhuman understanding of time. <laughs> like uh there's um uh, mm-hmm. Did you did you ever see the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Sherlock Holmes movies? Yeah, yeah, I know the scene you're talking about too. You know, like where they go through the thing where he fights the the fight in his head before they even throw a punch. Like mm-hmm. that that kind of thing is the kind of hyper, you know, super super supernatural um, understanding of time that he would need to really be a uh, um, right. a hand to hand foe for Batman. Right, but uh, yeah, but in the context of a kids' show, though, I thought they did it pretty well. Yeah, no, I think so too. I mean, it still falls into the, the the trap that a lot of these things fall into, where it's like, well, they're trying to do something different. They're trying to be m- less comic booky or less, you know, uh, '60s Batman. But mm-hmm. all of these villains, no matter how plausible or quote unquote realistic their origins are, they still end up having henchmen and somehow have like access to robots and stuff. Yeah, and amazing funding. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I I thought overall, I I was kind of thinking through this episode. I was like, man, I wish they would use the Clock King in a Batman movie. I think he would be a really interesting villain if you kind of yeah. put a yeah. uh, like a modern, realistic spin on him. He could be very scary and very effective. It'd be very pretty cool. Yeah, it's funny. He kind of has some similarities to the Riddler at times. Yes, he does. Um, even Alfred, maybe that's just the suit, though. <laughs> well, I guess you know he's he's kind of he's interesting because he's he's kind of a, a little bit of the Riddler and a little bit of Two Face, where he's he's very um, his entire thing is is being uh, super confident in his own abilities, but mm-hmm. at the same time he still has that Two Face thing where if if you if you mess with his time. He kind of that's like his his Achilles heel. That's where he loses it. Right. So yeah, he's he's an interesting mix of uh, mix of stuff. He he's been around since 1947, uh, in Ooh, which wow. in his first appearance he was originally simply called the Clock, and he had no superpowers or abilities other than a rigid sense of order and timing and punctuality. <laughs> <laughs> this was Sound- back before they really figured out how to write comics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, it's funny that they uh, revamped him for for this though. It's good that they did. I mean, I, I never heard of him until uh, this 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 show. You know. Well, he was. Uh, uh, well, oh, it's funny. His, his apparently his original name uh, was William Talkman, which is not quite as good a name as Temple Fugit, I don't think. No. Um, but he was actually also in the only episode of the Batman '60s TV show written by Batman co-creator Bill Finger. Oh. Yeah, let's get into that at the end of this episode. Sure. <laughs> um, hey, quick, do you do you prefer the Batman like slice of life type stories, or do you like the supervillain, big event type stuff? For um, Batman? I don't know. I'm kind of, 
I think overall... I can't remember if I've said this before. I feel like I'm, I'm at least based on this show, I was traditionally always more of a recognizable villain mm-hmm. guy. Um, but there are really great slice-of-life Batman episodes. Um, yeah. I think, I think we get to one of them. I think a, his appointment in Crime Alley is pretty good. Yeah, um, it's... Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a good balance, I and mean, you can't have one without the other, obviously. Yeah, um, I think. Well, what it's, what's great about them is they really they they give you a good sense of of Gotham, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and also like it's a chance when you do these smaller stories, you get to focus on Batman and his his thing and what he's doing and sort of his psychology. Like I, I find the most revealing episodes of, of Batman, the person is like Crime Alley or even stuff like with Baby Doll. Like there's there's mm-hmm. stuff that you get a good window into his humanity that you don't get with a big splashy Joker story. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely they definitely let you explore different aspects of the character that are you know. Yeah. There's only so many times you can have Batman punching a henchman in the face before you, it, it, at least from a writing standpoint, want to do something different. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This. I mean, overall, this episode's pretty good. Uh, I think it's probably a. I, I appreciate it more knowing that he's a recurring villain because um, like I said I assumed I guess because I, I had never heard of him before I assumed he was a one-off but he, he is a recurring Batman villain uh, mm-hmm. the animation in this one is a little slow I've noticed there's a uh, something that they do is um, early in the episode if the animation is really kind of slow and choppy it mm-hmm. means there's a really well animated sequence that's really complicated at the end Right, and yeah. uh, there's that cl- and the clock sequence at the end when they're fighting on the gears and stuff is v- is really really cool. Yeah, that's. I mean, you ever drawn gears and cogs before? No, I I, I purposely try to avoid it. <laughs> oh God, yeah, it's it's a nightmare. Every tooth, every cog. Plus, you're working with ellipses and perspective. I mean, the way to do it is to do it like straight on eye mm-hmm. level, so <laughs> you know you can kind of cheat it, or exactly from the side, like the way you would draw a gun, so you don't have to worry about perspective. Right. Yeah. And but I that, mean, that and, must have been a pain to animate. And in this sequence, I believe there's even, like, they, they even do, like, camera moves around the cogs and stuff. Yeah. Which, like, yeah. whoever, who, the <laughs> one guy that had to animate that, like. His name is one turn. <laughs> yeah. That, Here that, you go, Jake. That Here you tw- go, buddy. That 25th of a second or, or half a second of animation must have, yeah. you know, ruined his marriage. You want to be an animator? You're part of the team, buddy. Who gets who gets to stay late? <laughs> I don't know. That cog doesn't look very compelling when you use the fisheye lens. Why don't you start over? <laughs> you go. You get your job working for the Batman animated series, and then you spend the next three months of your life just drawing circles. I know. You get so good, like cog, cog, cog. You get home. You're just a robot. I bet Temple Fugit would be good at animating that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if he really, if he had just harnessed his uh, uh, hyper uh, hyper uh, uh, attention to detail for something right. positive, he really could have been, uh, you know, a much a much different, much more positive um, yeah. aspect to society. Yeah, if the, the personality like his, he should have worked for NASA or on satellites because there's a lot of timing issues with getting satellites and GPS correct. Like, I can think of a lot of better ways for him to spend his his. Uh, different vocations for him that's true but he... we, we don't know that he's actually smart though <laughs> oh well he's smart-ish that's true <laughs> he did he did uh, he did um or 
orchestrate a very elaborate train crash <laughs> scene. That old man, that train crash sequence was pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, so uh, if you had to animate, or sorry, uh, translate one of these scenes to a comic, what, what would you do? Um, you go first. I have it written down, but I'm, I'm trying to find it. Um, spitballing here. I think I would do some kind of a train sequence. I like drawing trains. Yeah. You get a chance to draw them elevated. You get a chance to sort of play with camera angles and stuff. And uh, I mean, it's hard, but I, I really like the challenge, that stuff. Yeah. How about you? Um, you know, I think I, I, I think it would have been cool to handle the uh, <clears throat> Batman's escape from the vault. It's not it's not very flashy, but it's yeah. It's the first time that well, I don't know if it's the first time. I say that a lot, and I'm usually wrong. Um, <laughs> but it's a it's one of the it's it's not the first time probably. But I'm trying to find <laughs> a better way into what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's a good example of Batman being really MacGyvery in a way that I feel like we don't see very often where he actually has to solve a problem um, to get yeah. out of a situation in, instead of them just like cutting away and then oh, he's, he's just out of it now. Um, yeah. and, being, and doing something like figuring out a way to, uh, to do that visually with like some insert panels or something like that could could be really cool of him like figuring out what around the room he could use or some, something like that could be pretty cool. Yeah. It's funny. Um, yeah. The Houdini part of it, Batman kind of gets overlooked sometimes. It's cool to see him using like basic lock picks. And, you know, there's a couple times in the series where he MacGyver's his way out of situations, which is pretty clever. Yeah. And in this one, uh, you know, they, they kind of, they do, uh, usually Batman ends up just having a specialized weapon or device for whatever problem he's in. Right. Uh, which is the magic of the utility belt. But in this in this sequence, they purposefully or uh, very specifically um, uh, eliminate those from the, the equation because uh, mm-hmm. the Clock King has, you know, he says, oh, I know you got this and I know you got this and if you use that, you'll blow up and if you use that, you'll blow up. So right. uh, he actually has to think his way out of it, which is which is fun. I wish they would do that more with him, just in general, like in the movies and stuff. I wish he was, Yeah. I, I, we, I, think, I've, I think we've both said this before, but I wish he was just a little lower tech. Yeah, I definitely always go back to that. It takes away from him his accomplishments if he's just got gizmos all the time. But if he has to use his brawn and his brains, it says more about Bruce and how like accomplished he is. It's funny, I did this book called Batman Scarecrow Year One once, and um, I can't remember exactly the ending, but it was a he was stopping the st- scarecrow, and the writer wrote some complicated thing involving gas and Batman had to get there ahead of time and like rig an air conditioner or get a confession. <laughs> it, was, it was really complex and I thought wouldn't Batman just like break through the window and just arrest him I mean I understand the MacGyver Houdini aspect of Batman and I know it's important but when it's quicker just for him to use his fists why doesn't he just use his fists you know I think sometimes writers try to use the Houdini thing and sometimes it doesn't always make sense yeah you know I mean the, the great thing about him is he's he's a little bit of everything. So you can use that stuff when it's necessary, but, yeah, it's, it's not always necessary to do. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, because I'm writing him, too, and I'm trying to think, like, I forget that he's the Houdini. Like, it just hasn't come up in my script, and I mm-hmm. forget. I don't have him using a lot of tech stuff. I don't know what my Batman is compared to other people's Batman. You know, you hear other writers talk about him, like, oh, Batman's a scientist, first and foremost, or... You know, Batman's a father, first and foremost, mm-hmm. or Batman's this or Batman's that. And, like, yeah, we know Bruce Wayne is goddamn everything, but it's funny, like, you have to almost 
cut out certain things of Batman just to focus on your voice for Batman, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it, when you have all the toys to play with in the toy box, it, you can get very um, right. Yeah, it's 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 easy to lose focus. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Clock King, we ha- this is another villain uh, origin story. How how do you think this? We haven't. We're we're going to be talking about another one um, next episode. Um, but how do you think this compares to the previous ones that they've done? Because we've seen a lot of them in this season of Batman. We've yeah. seen Two Face. We've seen Poison Eye. Basically, every major villain has had yeah. a uh, an origin sequence. Um, it, yeah. Arguably, Scarecrow has had two. Uh, yeah, and they keep they keep trying, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd say they nailed this one. I mean, there's not too much I would fix. You know, keep in mind it's a it's a kids show, mm-hmm. and they only have like 22 minutes or whatever. But uh, yeah, I think this is really successful. How about you? Yeah, I, I I I would agree. I think he's he's a he's an interesting villain. Um, I appreciate that he is not directly tied to Batman, which they actually haven't really done too much of in right. this in the se- season. Um, I appreciate that his drive is fairly specific. Um, mm-hmm. The the thing I was thinking was I don't know how often he comes back. And if he does come back, uh, what is his purpose? Because he's, he seems to be driven right. specifically on getting revenge against the mayor. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you can always find it some reason to use the Clock King for some generic reason, I guess. Yeah. But as far as, like, the main purpose of him his being, it's, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they bring him back uh, once more in this series, and... They have some pretty awesome sci-fi elements. Mm-hmm. They get some really good scenes out of it. Um, but you're right; like Clock King could be very repetitive if you don't address it carefully. You know, and I think he also comes back once for a JLA or JSA or whatever mm-hmm. one of those. But I, I haven't seen it. I have to say, I'm very jealous of his sweet clock glasses. <laughs> and his clock is his cane. His hour minute. Yeah. Do you think? I mean, cane. in 1990. <laughs> Two or ninety three, you can't get that online. So where do you, do you think he got those at like a party place or something? Or I think he stole it from a giant clock. That's probably true. <laughs> That's the better yeah. answer. Yeah. All these all these big set pieces in Gotham. Why not just gank one? Yeah. <laughs> Have it you know plated with brass or whatever. <laughs> yeah, just take it out of the uh, the warehouse that has the giant typewriters and the giant playing cards in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, without it, he's just a guy in a top hat, and it's pretty ridiculous. He needs like a thing that has a button to push or. You know, same again. Same thing with the Riddler. Yeah, they you know they give him that like exploding yo-yo pocket watch thing, and I know I don't know I I kind of I like the low techness more or less of the Clock King. I mm-hmm. I think he would be cool in a movie um, for that reason specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would be because Batman gets so high tech in the movies. It would be interesting to pit him against a really low tech um, right. yeah. foe. Who, like basically digital Batman versus analog villain would be would be pretty fun. Yeah, um, yeah, that's I love that stuff. Yeah, so he could be he has some potential. I hope I hope they do something but cool with him. It's it sucks because I mean they I just don't see them doing that as a main villain because it's just yeah. not flashy enough. Honestly, like if, if you had a you know Batman Netflix series where they could just 
you know, 60 minutes and do a slice of life episode or something like this. I could see them nailing it, but yeah. honestly with, you know, a hundred million dollars at stake, no one's going to want to bet on the clock King, unfortunately. Hey man, there's no reason you have to make a hundred million dollar <laughs> Batman movie. Uh, honestly, I haven't watched Gotham. Uh, I've been, I've been th- circling around it as being the next thing that I binge through while I'm working. Uh, right. But I wouldn't be surprised if he shows up on Gotham. He may already have shown up on Gotham. I don't know. I haven't watched it. But that would be a good place to use him, probably. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's not really a ton else to say about about this episode. I think we kind of you know covered, yeah. covered the broad strokes. Uh, do you have a rating for this one? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go four out of five, I'd say. Yeah. How about you? I think I, I would agree. I think it's it's really good, really solid origin, and uh, and he's a good villain. Yeah, yeah, it would be cool to draw him. Yeah, I mean, he's not one that you tend to think of, but I think it would be a cool. You don't have to draw, you know, crazy, you know, things that you'd have to draw with Clayface or whatever. But a Clock King story would be kind of fun. Maybe if it was only eight pages, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking he would be cool. I like you. You're, you're talking about the Clayface stuff, and I, I would gravitate more towards the Clayface stuff because if I'm, oh yeah, if I'm with, if I'm thinking about the Clock King, the first thing I'm thinking is okay. This art has to be very precise, and there's going to be a lot of technical drawing yeah. involved. Whereas Clayface, gonna... you just splat the ink down, and it's like, no, that's yeah, just part of his arm. It's fine. No, your your style definitely lends itself to Clayface. I imagine for uh, Clock King, you'd need like Chris Ware or somebody who's yeah. just really annoyingly precise. Yeah, or uh, what's or Brian uh, Stelfreeze? Yep. Uh, who's um, J.H. Williams III, who does the, he does a lot of really cool, elaborate uh, designs yeah. for the pages. He would be really cool doing that. Oh, that's true. Or the uh, Yannick Paquette, who does yeah. he did Swamp Thing. He does these like similar layouts. He could do things with clocks and circles, and you know, it'd be hard to know which panel to go to next. But I bet it would be pretty pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be cool. So hopefully, hopefully the Clock King shows up in in, in some media fairly soon because he's a cool character. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's about it for Clock King. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back with appointment in Crime Alley. Our second episode today is Appointment in Crime Alley, written by comic book writer Jerry Conway and directed mm-hmm. by Boyd Kirkland. And mm-hmm. in it, uh, with the help of arsonists, Roland Daggett plans to destroy Crime Alley and use the land to expand his business empire. Yeah. But that plan would mean killing the residents or forcing them to abandon their homes. Now, Batman must foil Daggett's plan and try to prove that he is a criminal. Note, based on the comic book story, There Is No Hope in Crime City by Denny O'Neill and Dick Giordano, which is, yeah. that's interesting, because I feel like so far there haven't been many that have been lifted directly from comics stories. Right. Um, and that's an interesting one to choose, uh, especially since it was written, the episode was written by a comics writer, but it's not an adaptation of a story that he wrote. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Huh. Well, who knows? <laughs> we don't really know how the sausage is made. Yeah, who, does, who cares? <laughs> um, this one, really liked this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked that it was a kind of... Um, there was an aspect to it that I really liked that I feel like you don't get a lot, which is Batman 
Batman's Batman-ness getting in in the way of his just normal life, but not in like a uh, cheeky, uh, plotty sort of way or a convoluted sort of way. It's literally he's trying to go meet a friend of his, but he can't because he has to keep solving crimes. And uh, But the difference is that in this case, the friend is actually he doesn't realize his friend is in trouble. We only, we only know that his friend is in trouble. Um, but it's a nice, it, it added a nice tension and a, to the story and had a different sort of feel than I, I think a lot of the Batman stories have. Yeah. I, uh, I've always loved this one just for the imagery at the end and knowing his sort of surrogate mother figure. And that, uh, I forget, uh, when do we realize that she knows his secret identity? Um, I have, imagine before this episode uh i don't remember where where it comes up but i mean maybe it's just well i think this is the first leslie tompkins episode oh is it really then i guess i i, believe... I don't know that's a good question because clearly, so, clearly she knows well so my thought is uh does i wish and i hope this is how it is and again i i didn't pay close enough attention to this but if we find out that she knows who he is on the last shot that would be awesome mm-hmm but I'm not sure if that's how it's done here. Uh, they don't really do that explicitly. Um, I think there's an, if I remember correctly, there is an understanding between them that she knows mm-hmm. that he's Bruce Wayne. And that they've slept together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was that one picture from the paper of her holding him as a child. So I don't know. She might be having some weird sort of like cougar thing going on. I don't know. Uh, do you recognize your voice, by the way? Uh, not off the top of my head. She is Pulaski from Star Trek. Oh, I knew I recognized the name. Yeah. I saw the name in the credits, and I was like, "That she sounds. That name sounds really familiar." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's She's a good great. choice for her. Yeah, the much <laughs> underappreciated uh, Doctor Pulaski. Yeah, you know, I always had a soft spot for, for Pulaski because I knew she had done this as well. Yeah, and it was nice to put a face with the voice. Um. I think Doggett, uh, not Doggett, that's the X-Files. I think Daggett is a, uh, uh, a good return villain. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other thing I really like about this episode is I really like the way it ends, where Batman, he doesn't entirely win. Right. He saves the people, but the bombs still go off, and he captures the arsonists, but he doesn't get the, the main guy. Um, it, it reminds me, I only, I'm thinking of this cause I just watched it for, uh, for Wes's podcast, but, um, the pilot of Miami Vice, which is, is, was always stood out to me because they don't actually catch the, the, the drug dealer at the end. The drug dealer mm-hmm. literally just flies away in a helicopter or a plane. Yeah. And, uh, it's always, it's always nice to see a Batman story where the ending is not a black and white cuffs on the mm-hmm. villain kind of ending where it's a little bit more gray and a little bit more uh, realistic. True, but to play devil's advocate or just to flat out point out what makes me angry <laughs> is at the end, Daggett's like, well, you have your perpetrators, officers. See you later. And he gets in his limo and Batman is clenching his fists about to punch the window and uh, Tompkins or somebody is like, oh, let it go. It'll, it'll be, there'll be a next time. It's like, yeah, a next time when he almost blows yeah. up more buildings? Like, we <laughs> fucking know he did it. I'm Batman. There's got to be clues out here. Arrest him. Like, it's just hard to imagine he would just get away that easily. But, again, it's a kid's show. Yeah, I think I, I, I like the, the intent. Um, I, you know, I, if the uh, 
dot to dot to get there is not entirely re- realistic. That's fine, especially since when he's got the arsonist in handcuffs. One of the arsonists is like, "But Mister Daggett, you told us to," and then you know, yeah. before he gets elbowed yeah. aside or whatever. Like Batman should just be like, "Told us to what? Told us to what? Come yeah. on, I'll I'll knock off like five hey, years of your sentence." Just That's just me. hearsay. That's just yeah, hearsay. No any proof. reason to arrest a less evil Donald Trump. <laughs> I do. The problem, the nitpick I have in this episode is that uh, Batman's strength is very inconsistent because he tries to uh, uh, stop a truck or something. I can't remember exactly or the train. He jumps on. Oh, the trolley, the trolley, the runaway trolley. He jumps on the trolley and he can't get into the trolley because the door's locked and he, he just jiggles the handle and he can't fi- figure out how to get through the door. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he doesn't try anything else very Batman. He's just like, well, I guess this door's locked. I guess this train's going to, everyone's going to die. Yeah, that's but, not what Houdini would have done, right. Jackass. And then <laughs> later in the episode, he, he when he catches the arsonist guy, he throws him into the U-Haul full of bombs, and he slams the thing and breaks the handle off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a little inconsistent. <laughs> Uh, you know, the one thing I, I, I was going to say, uh, we were talking before this, I, I was going to talk about the Batmobile because I, I can't remember if we talked about the Batmobile, but I'm pretty sure we did. Uh, if you're listening, uh, we, we, we are doing these week to week. There's, there's been a big gap between this one and the last one. So everything we've said, we may repeat because we forgot everything. Um, but I did want to point out there's a big focus on the wheels of the Batmobile for some reason in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of really cool, like, um, perspective rotating camera shots around the wheels, and it really, it accents that awesome, like, re- recessed rim that the Batmobile has that I don't even know if really makes sense. Yeah. Um, structurally, but it looks cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. cars are easier to animate when you're at eye level with the ellipse of the wheel. Mm-hmm. So, like, technically speaking, it's easier to draw a car from the ground than it is looking down on the car. So I think that has to do some with some of it. But yeah, they are really obsessed with burnouts and stuff in this episode. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, they, I like. I don't know if that was just uh, an interesting storytelling choice to uh, lead into when he stops the trolley with the Batmobile, and you know, the tires blow out. Um, Speaking but, uh, of wheels, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I really like the sort of like this is a Tuesday for Batman story. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> yeah. the I was expecting from the title for it to be a little bit more focused on his parents. I'm glad that it wasn't. I'm glad that it's just sort of like a grace note at the end. Yeah, yeah. They sort of suggest this, you know. So Leslie Thompson came. She was some sort of child therapist that took Bruce in after this horrible thing happened, and you can only imagine like what. You know, she helped him through his years of development, getting over his parents' death. And when did she find out? Did he willingly tell her or did he tell her along the way, like, hey, I'm thinking about trying this thing out called Batman? I don't know. <laughs> Can you keep a secret? <laughs> Maybe that's why she can't tell anybody. Because she's under some kind of like, you know, when your psychologist isn't allowed to tell people what you tell them. She has to get him all the HGH he needs to keep all of his... his uh, um... <laughs> joints and ligaments strong <laughs> yeah that that the pcp is on <laughs> i uh i did like that um the batman in this episode kind of fits your vision of batman where uh <laughs> the scene there's a guy who's threatening to kill some guy other guy up on top of a billboard mm-hmm. and uh you know the the police are there and i'm assuming they have hostage negotiators and I'm, I'm i'm sure they have a way like by the book to do it and batman's <laughs> like i'll handle this myself and <laughs> it almost ends up getting everybody killed Yep. 
Yeah, that's the nice thing with Batman is he can cut through the red tape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was happy to see that they used the uh, 1989 Michael Keaton Batmobile bat turn where he shoots the grappling hook around a uh, telephone oh, yeah. pole and hooks around the corner. That's always nice to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day... Yeah, he's lucky there isn't like a pedestrian there or a weak telephone pole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, the uh, um, overall the the structure of this one with the sort of Batman keeps getting sidetracked by Batman stuff thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that they don't bring attention to it too much, and I feel like in normally that sort of thing would be like the main focus of some sort of like structure gimmick structure episode where it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, you'll never believe what happened to Batman today. You know, like something like that, where it's just right. a day full of crazy Batman stuff. Whereas this right. is just yeah. Batman having to solve little problems. And it kind of made me think, uh, if I ever, if I ever did a Batman story, I think a short Batman story would be fun to deal mm-hmm. with how Batman chooses what crime to solve. Because right. there's so many things clearly going on in Gotham City. What what makes him choose right. the uh, runaway trolley versus yeah versus some, the orphans or yeah whatever. versus the orphans or if like if the Joker's <laughs> doing X, does right. he still have time in his schedule to stop like a domestic violence thing or something? You right. Know? Yeah. It's like watching Star Trek. It's nice that they only have one catastrophe at a time. Yes. <laughs> God forbid Clayface breaks out while Jokers are also on a rampage, and they're completely not connected at all, but it's just a horrible week for Batman. Yeah, I wonder if, if when you join the Bat family, if, like, you know, you have to start, like, as an intern, so your first couple months are just answering, like, uh, uh, fraudulent 911 calls and... <laughs> and um, you know, uh, parking lot disputes or something like that, where it's something that, you know, Batman would like to get to if he had the time, but he's got bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Yeah. You do the small shit. You take care of like, you know, Mad Hatter and people that don't really matter. And I'll take care of Joker and the muscle. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I was going to point out was, yeah. um, so this, the, the, I like all these little vignettes of Batman going to work mm-hmm. and it's just a, a tough night. And I think it's important because the question about, Batman really wants to save Gotham. Well, if Gotham is such a shitty place, why is it worth saving? And in this episode, it's reliant on this crappy neighborhood that they want to destroy, but they need to show that a lot of good people still live at Crime Alley. So I think that these vignettes support the argument of, let's not forget they're still good in Gotham. So without these, it's not just Batman's like daily chore or nightly chore list. It's also in support of reminding the viewer of the good in Gotham. And this is why Batman is fighting, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. It definitely is sort of a, why we fight sort of episode or why I fight episode, but it's like a, it's more of a low key one, which is nice. Cause again, even yeah. that is usually when they do those episodes, those are, you know, very front and center. This mm-hmm. is the point we're trying to drive home. And this one is a little bit more, a little more subtle about that, which mm-hmm. is, uh, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, do you have a sequence that you'd like to draw or like to adapt in any way? Honestly, I would just like to do a uh, splash page of Batman and Leslie Tompkins just kneeling with the rose. It's kind of a Tim Burton, you know, shot little mm-hmm. emo, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, I've always really liked that. How nice. about you? Um, I actually really liked the sequence uh, where Batman is is fighting those the thugs inside like the the apartment with no lights on. Mm-hmm. It was like the, the idea of this like really shadowy Batman fight inside of the park. Basically, it's really easy because it's just a bunch of black panels. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, but it would be uh, that would be fun because it would 
you know how you would play with the limited amount of light you have and and yeah. and what to accent in your fight and you know maybe one of them has a flashlight or something that would be a lot of fun yeah yeah for sure what uh what kind of grade do you think for this episode i'm gonna give this one i think i think i'm gonna give it a four mm-hmm. i don't know if i would go five it is it's really good it's very under the radar really good um yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to go four. What about you? I'm going to go five, Yeah, but I'm going to go week week five. Yeah. I think that if someone hadn't seen it before, I, I might pick this as one of my top five to show them because it's very accessible to a new viewer. It shows it shows a lot with 20 minutes, you know? Yeah, it does. Yeah, they do and a really Les- good job. And I'm just a huge sucker for Leslie Thompson. I even put her in my book uh, just as a cameo briefly. But a younger and hotter version, right? <laughs> yeah, no, not the cougar version or whatever you call her at the beginning. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think we covered pretty much everything for that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you wanted to touch on um, the Bill Finger yeah. documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this documentary came out last week about Bill Finger, who people in comics sort of knew this for a long time that Bill Finger had a huge hand in creating the Batman mythos. No pun intended. Uh, yeah um and you know it's unclear exactly what he did but the laundry list can sound something like you know he invented the Batcave, batmobile you know all these sort of side villains uh he came up with the phrase the dark knight um alfred you know even so even back so far as to say that he created the idea of the ears on the cowl and oh yeah the bat cape and the bat symbol and the symbol, <laughs> basically yeah. everything yeah yeah, and then you've got Bob Kane, who is traditionally credited as the sole creator for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Bob Kane, uh, you know, this all was in the 30s, so who the fuck knew Batman was going to be a multi-billion dollar franchise, of course. Right. And you, it's the story of the artist, Phil, Phil Finger, who kind of got steamrolled and didn't really um, fight to get what was due. And you've got Bob Kane, who is this showman who... Um, you know, did everything he could to make as much money as possible on Batman, which mm-hmm. is fair game. But then he went out of his way to discredit um, Bill Finger every chance he got. And did he do it because contractually he had to keep this lie going? Because if you, you know, you have to undo, um, if you need to rewrite the ownership of Batman, well, that fucks up Warner Brothers. That's a huge problem. So maybe he had to lie for decades and decades mm-hmm. and decades. But then uh, after Bill Finger died, poor and penniless by some accounts, that's when Bob Kane finally decided to ease up and give him the credit he deserved, which sort of makes him look like more of a dick. Yeah, know? yeah. And keep in mind, all these years, he's making money on, you know, the Adam West Batman and, you know, Michael Keaton Batman, and he's just downplaying Finger as much as he can. He's showing up to red carpet affairs wearing a fucking cape. He's paying artists to do art for him and signing it with his own name. I mean, all of it's legal, all of it's capitalism, and, you know, to credit Bob Kane... He had these ideas. He was the one out there doing this stuff, whereas Bill Finger was doing who knows what. And it's, it's kind of a weird story. And you, you want to feel bad for Bill Finger, but uh, I don't know. What, what did you think about it, Clay? Well, I think the, I think the, the difficult part about it is at the, at the front of the documentary, they go out of their way to explain that really there isn't much known about Bill Finger. There, you know, he wasn't he didn't make a huge stamp on history. I mean, anybody that knew him is more or less dead. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and there's no way to know what he did or didn't do. Um, and I think that's unfortunate because th- then the rest of your story ends up focused. Basically, you're creating your story out of if, if, if you can convince people that Bob Kane is a big enough asshole, you can probably assume that, oh, he must have screwed this guy over. And I'm not that's I'm not saying that he didn't. I think, you know, mm-hmm. it's it was basically the worst kept secret in comics that Bill yeah. Finger is primarily pri- it, it very heavily, if not primarily um, responsible yeah. for all the cool stuff that that is related to Batman. Um, but, yeah, I, it's uh, from what I from what I know. It sounds like that Bill was not really that much of a. It seems like they were just two very different personalities, where Bob Kane was someone who was going to take every advantage that was that was in front of him, and Bill Finger was just a lot more, um, you know, not that he was a little bit more introverted and and didn't really uh, wasn't flashy and and probably probably to his own detriment because I mean if he made a, a a bigger noise about it at the time maybe we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I, my habit is, I, I, there's so many stories in comics, in the history of comics for decades, of artists getting steamrolled. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I love what Kevin Smith said in the documentary about uh, comic fans wanting to defend the underdog. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of this, this, uh, you almost want to believe that your comic artists are poor and mistreated, so you can always rush to their defense, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but having known a lot of artists, obviously, and knowing a lot of them don't do nearly what they should to protect themselves, I tend to side with corporations, which is weird for a guy who wrote Punk Rock Jesus and just kind of says things that I, You're I do You're really sometimes. killing your brand here, Sean. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, I, I just, artists are so bad at defending themselves and they're just not motivated. To, they don't get lawyers. They don't ask questions. They just, they want to you know, lock themselves in a room and draw. And that is not conducive to you know, organizing your career in a healthy way. Right. In the interest of longevity. And I feel bad for Bill Finger, but the reason that he stressed his family out two generations after, you know, not only his son, and his, but his grandkids, is because he didn't fight this battle himself. Part of me thinks that that wasn't, that beat wasn't hit hard enough. Like that's, the, I know that, you know, it's such a shame and all these visuals of him, you know, dying alone and poor, but <laughs> you know what, man, you didn't go out and defend yourself. And this is, you're a freelancer. Like no one's going to come to your rescue and, you know, years and years go by. And the only reason that anything was done was because there was monetary interest mm-hmm. um, by lawyers and such and such and families to, to want to right these wrongs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think enough people talk about that. And not to always side with the corporations, but I, I was definitely feeling that a lot when I was watching the episode with uh, the documentary. Well, in this situation specifically, I think I think you're right about the way things are now because there's so much more known about the value of IPs and the value of um, art in mm-hmm. general and thinking, you know, fourth dimensionally about what you're you're creating right. and how it can be used in the future. To be fair, I think it was it was a different it was just a different beast back then. I mean, it was um, it it was a brand new medium that mm-hmm. uh, no one really knew how it worked. I mean, the publishers right. were making the rules along going along as as making making the rules up as they went along. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had stuff uh, like you couldn't cash your check 
because unless you signed away everything as a work for hire, because there was no contract, what they would do right. is they would stamp on the back of the check where you had to sign your name to cash it. And right. the stamp would say, by signing this, you acknowledge that all your work right. is work made for hire and you have no ownership over anything. So if you wanted right. to get paid, you had to sign that box. And I mean, right. these are just... Well, Bob you know, Kane got paid. Yeah, I mean, Bob Bob Kane figured it out. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm not going to say it's it's a... He he seems to be the exception to the rule. I mean, he almost is, yeah. explicitly, because I mean, I can't think of any anybody else right. up through. You get Stanley. Stanley was probably the next one I can think of who yeah. wasn't doing a comic strip. So like mm-hmm. you like Dick Tracy and stuff like that. I feel like Chester Gould and all those guys had their names attached to them. Right. But when it came to the actual comics, um, like the comic mm-hmm. books, everything right. was so. Right. Uh, the work was so, um, what's the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for? Right. Um, part, part of the reason that I've always under this, I've always understood it as part of the reason that, and I, people ask me this all the time. And if you, if you disagree, feel free to, free to feel free to tell me. Oh, um, I will. <laughs> people always ask me, Oh, why do comics, wh- why do other people do the coloring? I mean, I, people ask me all the time, Oh, did you do the coloring book? No, other people do the coloring. And they say, Oh, why is that? And why, why? Are there right. letterers? Why are there co- because the way I understood it is that one of the reasons why they did that was to break up the tasks specifically so no one person could claim ownership over the property. And so when you've got a situation where Bob Kane is basically doing the same thing that DC Comics was doing, except he was mm-hmm. doing it on his own level. So he was breaking up all the tasks and he had the writers and artists and colorists underneath him. Right. And then he was selling to DC. So mm-hmm. all of that, uh, he was preventing the people working under him from having any ownership, but then right. he could present the finished product in the same way that like a comic strip artist would, where they have their name all over it. And it's like, this is just me. I'm the only person that did this. Right, right. Well, so the reason the comics, the, I don't color my comics. And the reason historically we've done it is because of serialization, getting these things out once a month. Yeah, you need too. You need a, an assembly line. Yeah. And it's not like they consciously divided up all the art tasks in order to screw you over they're not that coordinated yeah i mean you've heard me tell a million stories about publishers like they're not that forward thinking i think mostly it's just doing the best they can to crank these out and you need hired guns so eventually found it took you know relatively four people to create a book and sometimes the jobs overlap maybe the artist created this maybe the writer did maybe the colorist or whatever contributed or maybe a letter came mm-hmm. up with something that ended up you never know. Or even the editor who contributes these ideas. They don't have any ownership over this stuff. You mm-hmm, know, their, mm-hmm. their, their job is to basically help you. And I mean, that's just, it is what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, when Bill Finger gets a pass from the 30s to the 60s, personally, when you get to the 60s, it seemed like he, especially when the Adam West Batman came into play and then Bob Kane started getting really wealthy. Um, from what the documentary said, they still hung out at that time like there's a scene where they're on a park bench after batman 66 so finger must have known that that bob kane was making a fortune if he didn't speak up at that point like that to me is like what the fuck are you doing man like why are we hanging out in a park why don't you give me some fucking money so i can you know i actually sleep in this park every day thanks to you (laughs) bob kane i mean to me that's that's where it gets criminal and i i have sympathy up to bob to bill finger to point but when he really doesn't take um actions in his own hands that that's really disappointing you know yeah i would i would agree with you i would agree with you there um 
you know, th- there's up that point. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, that that point in the '60s when when Batman was really taking off. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I would agree with you that at that point he should have spoken up. But mm-hmm. from what the documentary says, there wasn't really any hard evidence that you could right. use to back his case up until much, much later. I mean, they had that that um, letter or that expose that was written by that fan magazine or whatever, but that was all based on hearsay, right. more or less. Right. Um, it's not until after Bill dies where Bob Kane writes his autobiography and puts in the mm-hmm. stuff where he's like, yeah, I probably should have given Bill credit for creating Batman or whatever. Well, but, you know, Bill Finger, as far as I know, never got a lawyer to even look into this stuff. That's true. No, I, You have 100%, a publisher. 100%. All of his friends at DC in the office, they all knew that he created this stuff, and they knew he was getting screwed over, and no one really wanted to address it because yeah. it's the 600-pound elephant in the room. Um, I understand that a lot of the compelling evidence came in after the fact, but he didn't even hire a lawyer to, to look at it. He didn't even have a conversation like, why aren't I getting fucking paid? You know I created the Batmobile. Like, if you don't start compensating me for X, Y, Z, things are going to get ugly, you know? And, yeah. I mean, I, I would have gone in there with that attitude, but I have the benefit of knowing the stories of the Bill Fingers out there. Right. To, to you know, get up in arms before it's a real problem, you know? But there's just so many art, there's so many Bill Fingers out there still. And right. there's no one seems, a lot of them don't seem to be capable of learning these lessons because, oh, I just want to be locked in a room while I draw it. Just leave me alone. My mm-hmm. my business affairs will somehow get sorted by somebody, you know, <laughs> and that's where you get fucked over. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I'm I'm glad to see his name on Batman stuff now. I think it deserves to be there, but unfortunately, his biggest, his lasting contribution is going to be as a cautionary tale, right? And um, yeah, totally. I think it's, it, you know, it it took a long time, and I, and again, we're speaking from working in the modern comics field where all of this stuff is known like what this is past the mm-hmm. bill finger story past siegel and schuster trying to get superman back for f- 50 years or whatever past right right past the kirby and and uh and stan lee fights and stuff like that it's mm-hmm. and all the work that neil adams did in the 70s to get creators back. oh I mean, yeah you know they, yeah. P- the artists didn't even used to get their artwork back the, yeah. the companies would keep the artwork and then they would just like throw it out or whatever um, yeah. You know, we, we, we're we're lucky enough to be past all that to to be in a a easier mm-hmm. um, easier field when it comes to that. If you're if you're be, if you're paying attention, but right. you there still is a hundred percent. There are people who don't pay attention and don't right. think about that stuff, and then they end up getting screwed. Right. Unfortunately, honestly, this is why I think some people tend to think that I'm kind of an asshole in comics. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, I mean, if you knew, if you knew me, hung out with me. All right, I'm aggressive. The way I talk, the way I, you know, I, I I get it. But honestly, like, I sit down with any of my readers and have a drink. I get along with everybody, honestly, unless they're a total dick. But uh, <laughs> the reason that I come across this way is because I I want to ask the questions that people don't want to ask. Right. You know, like, no one wants to know how the sausage is made. And when I go to shows, all I want to know is what are the numbers like? Is there a comic book bubble? Um, you know, is there any organization with this book, that book? Like, what's the long game? No one talks like that. No one asks those questions. When you go to shows, it's mostly, um, you know, talking about Gotham or talking about a movie or just fanboys fanboying out, which Mm -hmm. is fine. But 
I don't know, man. I just I'm way more interested in the real stories behind the scenes because the, 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 there is Shakespearean betrayal that has happened in decades of DC <laughs> Comics that's way better than The Dark Knight. And why they don't just publish stories of what happens between editors is beyond me because that stuff is salacious. <laughs> <laughs> I know why they don't, but I, I just find that stuff really interesting. But I, I get kind of a, a bad rap for it, I think. Plus, I'm an asshole. Yeah, I mean, primarily you're <laughs> just an asshole. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's... Yeah, uh, well, I don't really know what else to say. But that... <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that... That sums it all up, and I mean, uh, I think that's probably going to do it for us today. It was an interesting conversation about that stuff, which we wouldn't get to talk about unless Bill Finger had gotten screwed. So thanks. I Bill. know, I know. It's funny. My uh, my lawyer, she worked for DC from like the late '80s till uh, some. She quit at some point, but a lot of the contracts they use are still her contracts, and she knows a lot of these players, and I know a lot of these people within DC. And, mm-hmm. I feel like the documentary is 90% accurate. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff in there that I think is a little skewed. Uh, I, I don't want to get into why, because what's the point? But uh, I did ask my lawyer, like, you should really watch this. I'm dying to know what you think of this and what your take is. So I'm going to get the answer. And if it's something I can share, I'd love to sort of go over this again on a different podcast. Yeah. the uh, my favorite. I think my favorite aspect of it was when they were talking about how it's traditionally... Uh, understood that in Bob Kane's contract, he was contractually contractually obligated to have his name, only his name, on all Batman stuff from that point forward. Mm-hmm. And the 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 lawyer for Bill Finger's granddaughter was the first person to be like, "Well, no one's ever actually seen that contract, mm-hmm. and we keep asking to see it. And the fact that they won't show it to us means that it probably doesn't say that." Right. Um. So and then they, you never find out whether or not it does say that but uh since his name is on the stuff now i'm gonna say it probably doesn't right honestly the uh, my get guess is they settled for a significant amount that made the family happy and not only was there a monetary settlement but there was a co-creator settlement as well mm-hmm. luckily well it, it, it's in the favor of the case that both creators have passed away to be honest yeah um the, yeah, like the, the documentary said, the first time Finger's name was included on a Batman movie was, unfortunately, Batman vs. Superman. Right. <laughs> um, but it's my understanding that he'll always be part of the equation from now on. So, Which is great. You know, I'm, I'm glad that that, uh, that, could, that wrong could be righted. And uh, it's an unfortunate story, but hopefully we all get to learn from it moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, for me, like, I, I don't know. Did you think the documentary painted DC as being villainous at all uh i don't know not not more than you would any other large corporation I think. <laughs> yeah i think that the, the granddaughter actually took great pains to say that everyone was really nice and they yeah. invited me to this and that and i got to be a celebrity and i got to this and that and she did go out of her way to say that they acknowledged that they're a large corporation but uh, i know the guy who they animated the guy who made that uh who said that dc and the finger family of have settled it mm-hmm. and that that's what triggered uh, them starting to launch this case his name is, is is Larry and I know him pretty well because he's the guy that calls me when I say something stupid on Twitter that starts giving DC shit so <laughs> I, I call him up I'm like Larry what's it like being Sean Murphy for today <laughs> like you're the PR guy you're supposed to not say stuff like that <laughs> and uh, at the end I'm like you know what man don't worry you get used to it 
Well, and he's like, I hate the way they animated me. They made me look so sinister. <laughs> well, I look forward to getting a call from Larry once this podcast comes out. I know. Clay, why did you give him a platform? <laughs> you know he's an asshole. <laughs> In his own words, for God's sake. <laughs> and uh, assuming, assuming we don't get shut down by DC's lawyers, we will be back next time with Mad as a Hatter and Dreams in Darkness. See you guys then. <laughs> Let me die.